Hello, and welcome again to At Length. Thanks for being here. At Length is a podcast of extended conversations with authors, artists, thinkers of all stripes. Today, a conversation with Peter Sagel, host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He'll be on stage at Town Hall Seattle, November 11th, with my friend and former colleague Ross Reynolds. They'll be talking about Wait, Wait, I'm sure, but also about Sagel's new book, The Incomplete Guide to Running. Peter Sagel started running when he was a kid, but that fell away. He became a serious runner in his 40s when he trained up and ran his first marathon. He's run many marathons since. He has written a very funny and very serious book about the big ideas behind his attraction to running and how it has shaped him. It's an unflinching examination of his own struggles with life, marriage, even success. Running helped. Hello. Hi, Stephen. Yes, how are you? I am fine. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. What's the difference between jogging and running? Um, that is a really good question. Um, there is a difference. It's not the difference that um, a lot of running chauvinists use or talk about. Uh, it's usually used as a, a disparagement. Oh, you're not really a runner. You're a jogger. Uh, and that usually is meant to disparage people whose times are not that great or who don't do you know more than 20 miles a week. And I don't believe in that distinction. I think anybody who runs in any distance can be a runner. However, I use that uh, distinction late in the book uh, to describe not so much, certainly not anything to do with your race results or your speed or your mileage or anything like that, but just how you think about the activity in terms of your life. If you're somebody who, for the cardiovascular benefits, gets on a treadmill three times a week uh, to watch Morning Joe while you you know, do your 30 minutes of cardio, then you're a jogger, even if you're doing that a couple times around the block. But if you're someone who's actually committed to the activity, if you're interested in getting better at it, if you're interested in the activity, the sport for its own sake, then you're a runner. It's kind of a, a, a something, a pastime versus a way of life. How do you, you can put it that way, if you like. Was it a way of life for you from the very beginning? You write about starting when you were 15. Did it feel like a way of life even back then? And that's when I first got my start. And as I write about in the book, by the way, I should ask, have you read the book? Because I, I don't know whether to address things I've said or, or assume you know them or not. Um, I have, actually. Oh, I got okay, it. Great. I All got right. it early this morning. And I just, uh, you know, I did pretty good. How about that? <laughs> I, I got it early that. this morning, overnighted, and I've done pretty good. So I, uh, I've, chunked, I, uh, I've gone through a lot. I appreciate that, and I, I, I sort of do that. My, I, I'm in that situation myself, so believe me, no blame on my part. Um, what I was going to say was that, you know, that first spate of running in high school was driven by a lot of things. Uh, uh, adolescent energy, which can be a positive or negative thing, um, self-loathing, <laughs> an eating disorder. You know, I mean, it was something I did and something I even got a little good at. But I don't think I went about it in the healthiest way. Let's say that. And then, of course, as I got as I write about and I got into you know college and other things that kind of fell by the way. And, and if I did, I did get out to go for an occasional run. It was definitely as a jogger and not as a runner, given my own distinctions. But I really didn't become a serious runner until I turned 40 in the way that I tell in the book. When I ran a marathon, trained up to it, ran a marathon and then. uh became kind of obsessed with doing it better. And that's when it really became a part of my life. Well, you do write a lot in the book about, 
By the way, a very serious book, funny as it, it is, a very serious I book. I, it's funny, given my brand is, you know, fart jokes and cackling. You, you, you might be surprised, but, you know, if you're going to do something outside your day job, you should at least make it different than your day job, don't you think? Yes, and I also, do you think that any really good comedian grapples with big ideas on a regular basis? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, what's weird is, is that if you've ever spent time with comedians, some of them, not all of them, some of them are the saddest people you've ever met. And some of them are, you know, grappling with uh, very, very difficult things, just like everybody else has. But they have chosen to deal with it in a different way, by being funny. Sometimes they do that to cope with whatever they're dealing with. Sometimes they deal with it because that's how they deal with their other anxieties of, you know, of trying to be in the world. You know, a lot of people, uh, they deal with their anxieties in the world in different ways uh, by being funny about them. Because they have that, you know, in their toolkit, you know, you're going to laugh or you're going to cry. So you might as well laugh. And I think some comedians, some people were so socially maladjusted that we find that making people laugh is the only way we can actually figure out how to relate to them. Yeah. Uh, but I think, but, you know, the relationship between humor and comedy is the subject of, among other things, uh, Hannah Gadsby's um, uh, recent special that everybody was talking about, Nanette. Yes. Where, which um, everybody, I, I assume you saw because everybody watched it so they could talk about it. Um, <laughs> I read about it. I yeah. haven't watched it. Yet. It, it. It's very interesting because one of the things that she does, as I'm sure you've heard, she, she, she tells some stories and they're very, very funny. And then she goes back and she retells the story and they're not funny anymore, mainly because she follows the story to their conclusion. And she makes really interesting points about how one of the things uh, about humor is that it, um, it, it it's, it's a way of avoiding the point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, the, I mean, this isn't her example, um, but it's it's a very it's an oversimplification. The guy slipping and falling because he slipped in a banana peel is funny. The guy breaking his back and spending six months in traction is not. You don't talk about that. You just go, ha ha ha! He slipped and fell. And she takes that very simplistic example and she applies it to much more serious real life situations. Uh, and so it's similar, you know, I mean, we're all dealing with stuff, but if you're going to be funny about it, it puts a limit on what you can actually say. So if you want to go further, sometimes you can't be funny anymore. You know, I worked at a comedy club as a bartender and um, I did interact with lots of comedians and that, that idea that they are um, taking it right up to the to the where the head is cracked open uh, when yeah. they slip is that's really uh, that's a remarkable concept for me because that is what it seemed like that's a lot of them were doing doing that consciously because they wanted to avoid the the next step which was pain exactly and and it's and and you know and Hannah I mean there are other people you can use but Hannah Gadsby talks explicitly about that you take some terrible painful thing. And you make it into a joke. You make it into a funny story. And I do that all the time. Um, I mean, that's how I cope. I tell, I, you know, I love to tell amusing stories about, um, about humiliating things that have happened to me. But if you make them funny, then it takes away the humiliation, right? Right, right. You, um, well, there, there, there it is in a nutshell, what you talked about. I mean, you, you were, um, you used the word anorectic when yes, you were a kid. I was. And because you didn't like the way you didn't like what you saw in the mirror or you didn't like the person yeah. that was inside your head. 
Well, at that point, it was very hard for me to distinguish between the two. Um, and in fact, that inability to distinguish between the two made me put my efforts into the wrong place, right? I mean, I thought with the wisdom of a 15-year-old or whoever old I was at the time, I was about that age, that all I needed to do was lose that weight and I would be a better, happier person. And of course, as I say in the book, I was the same miserable person. I was just in a smaller box or smaller bag. Um, and, 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 you know, that, I, that, of course, lies behind a lot of people with eating disorders. Uh, usually, as I say in the book, we always talk about this as we talk about, as we talk about it with women, uh, because women, uh, you know, this is women, we talk more about their, the pressures of body image put on them. And also, women die the excuse of athleticism, right? If a guy like me decides to stop eating and run obsessively and I lose 30 or 40 pounds in high school, well, he's just really committed to his athletic career, right? He's running cross country. He wants to be better and people applaud that, you know? Uh, if you're a woman and you, start, you starve yourself and you lose weight, then all of a sudden everybody's like, oh my gosh, there must be something wrong with her. And of course, there is in both cases but men get a buy, get a pass, I mean. And I think certainly think that's what happened to me. Nobody, nobody minded because it seemed like I was, you know, in, improving my health, right? Did you know this book would uh, follow the journey it followed when you imagined it or did it emerge as you were writing it? Uh, it kind of emerged as I wasn't writing it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, what happened was that I signed the contract to write this book way back, uh, I think it was in early 2012. And then things uh, changed. There were some explosions. First, um, my marriage exploded. My family exploded. And then my then the Boston Marathon exploded when I was standing right there. And uh, those events both, shall we say, got in my way of sitting down and writing what was supposed to be a breezy book about you know how to become a successful midlife crisis runner. Um, but it also, uh, changed how I thought about the book instead of it being, instead of being breezy. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I, I just, to put it mildly, I wasn't in the mood to write an amusing athletic guide, but, uh, the Boston marathon happened. I told, I happened by bizarre circumstance. I was attending a, um, conference that very week. And so I showed up, uh, all a tremble from what I had been through. And instead of doing the presentation I was going to do, I told the story of what had happened just the prior Monday. And then less than a year later, I told the story again of a moth. They had always wanted me to, to tell a story, but I used to tell them I, nothing interesting has ever happened to me. I got nothing to say. And then I called them up and I said, I think I have a story to tell. So I did the piece at the moth. If you're curious, you can listen to it. It's still online. Just Google Sagal Moth. And that was the first time I told sort of the story of how I ended up in the Boston Marathon that day in a coherent way. And that, after I told it and after it was received pretty positively by people, uh, that became, I realized, the first chapter of the book. And I decided that I would, you know, write a book that was loosely about that year in my life. Um, from April 2013, my marriage was falling apart. I was at the Boston Marathon. And I would return to Boston the next year, and I would write about everything that happened in that year and go back and forth in time, et cetera, et cetera. I remember listening uh, and covering this story that day, and, and on All Things Considered, of course, you were, you were on there, and you, as you put in the book, you were there, and you, um, 
you, I love the description of it because you you seem very much out of place and out of sorts, and you were with a man who you were had guided through the marathon, and he, yeah, he must also have been out of place and out of sorts. Well, it's, it was very strange. We were, you know, we had both run marathons before, so that wasn't weird. What was weird was the enormous explosion that happened right behind us just after we crossed the finish line. I mean. You, it, it was. Uh, I still remember that in the way that you remember traumatic events very vividly. And it, I just remember standing there and, and looking at the the plume of smoke, you know, towering into the sky, and just having absolutely no way to comprehend what had just happened. I mean, you just don't expect there to be terrorist bombs at the finish line of a marathon. You know, maybe if you're in a war zone, that happens and you go, oh, it's an explosion. Or hell, maybe if you're even in a place where there are lots of terrorist attacks, you think there. But we were just, what in the world could that be? And we just stood there and stared at it and wondered and looked at each other. What was that? And then another one went off. Boom. And we're like, what is going on? It was the strangest thing ever. And, and, and you know, there were a lot of people around, people who were on the other side of the finish line, on the side where the bombs were, and they of course, we're being confronted with what had actually happened by seeing victims and blood and all kinds of terrible things. We, though, were like, I don't know what that is. We can't figure it out. Uh, the guy I was with, he's you know, visually impaired, so I felt like I needed to help him get to the end of the finish line, so rather the finishing shoot. So we just sort of walked away. So we had this very bizarre moment. Like the world was convulsed in shock all around us physically and virtually, because everybody else had, you know, phones and whatever to start getting the news on. We just sort of blithely stumbled through the finishing shoot, getting bananas. It was a very strange moment. And we, and we didn't realize the extent of what had happened until, as I write in the book, until we had got out not, gotten out of there. Yeah, very disconcerting. You had some choice words for the bombers, but you also went back the next year to help another yeah. impaired person, but also to just to do it? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that was very, very common among everybody who was there, people who finished the race, people, and especially people who weren't able to finish the race, because what had happened, of course, was once the bomb went off, the police, of course, had no idea if that was the first of many. So the finish line had become a crime scene, as well as an emergency. And so they stopped the runners a few blocks down without telling them why, right? So you, and there were still thousands of runners in the course. I don't know how many. Somewhere up to like 10,000 people had yet to finish. And all of those people were stopped and told to go home. And by the way, it was very hard to get home too because they were blocking streets. And so all of those people, plus everybody who had run the marathon, everybody who cared about the marathon or marathon, and everybody who cared about Boston, uh, and I'm, I'm, all of those things are true of me, um, absolutely determined instantly, we are coming back next year and we are running this goddamn race. There was also, it's, it's, it's a little distant now, but there was concern about, you know, would the Boston Marathon ever be okay? Now it would have been the site of a mass murder attempt. Uh, you know, you, you tend not to, you know, in, in the same way I think people were feeling, if not thinking too clearly, that if a plane crashes, they cancel that flight forever, right? You know, if, yeah. if Flight 7, if Pan Am Flight 7 becomes one of the biggest airplane disasters, there are no more Pan Am Flight 7s. And so I don't know what people were thinking, like, will there ever be a Boston Marathon again? Will they be able to run it again? Who knows? In retrospect, that was silly. Of course they were going to run it again. But there was a real determination among people to, to just absolutely show up again and do this again. And I, you know, instantly, at least mentally, signed up for that. 
I like to read uh, acknowledgments in books, and it's always me too. Among your early yeah. readers, Roy Blunt Jr. and Alex Kotlowitz. Roy Blunt yes. Jr., a great humorist. Uh, yes. Any concern about showing him the book, or were you hoping that he would be a teacher? Oh well, first of all, Roy Blunt is uh, two things in addition to being uh, a a brilliant humorist. A, he's a dear friend. I've known him for twenty years, uh, and colleague. And B, he's one of the greatest writers of prose alive. He doesn't get enough credit for that um, because he's sometimes seen as a humorist. I think he's an incredibly vivid writer of nonfiction. In fact, his memoir, uh, Be Sweet, is one of the great, I think, memoirs of all time. And again, for some reason, Roy just doesn't get, you know, he's, he's thought of as a humorist, but he's, he's a brilliant writer. And so both books of mine I gave to him early. Um, Roy really liked it. Uh, he was very positive. Uh, Roy thought I should write more about my dating life after my divorce, but I told him that's for another book. Um, Alex Kalowitz is a friend. He lives in the same suburb of Chicago that I do, Oak Park. And of course, Alex is a very different kind of writer than Roy is. Alex is not funny, um, <laughs> but very serious and a, again, a very talented writer. And what was interesting was uh, Alex, is, a Alex read an early version of the book, which had a lot more a lot more information and material about what had happened to my family, specifically between myself and my ex-wife and my children. And Alex's very strong advice was to not publish that version. And he was entirely correct. Um, I, 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 I will, I will, I mean, it does seem strange that I have to have an award-winning writer like Alex Kotlowitz tell me something so obvious, but uh, it turned out to be the case. He wasn't the only person that told me that, but uh, that was his advice. And I took that advice and, and really, really pared down that material. Not because it wasn't important to me. I think I really needed to write that material to tell it, to tell that story. But I think it would have been a real mistake to publish it. I think that it would have been, a, among other things, a gross violation of the privacy of my children. So Alex's great contribution to me and to, for which I had, he has my gratitude is to keep me from making a terrible, terrible mistake. Huh. Well, there's still, the rawness peeks through. Yeah, it's still there. It's just covered up a lot. Um, I mean, uh, it, it's tough because, you know, what happened to me and my family was very profound and very difficult and profoundly, I think, important to me. But one of the things, one of the mistakes that you can make when something like that happens is to get very solipsistic to think that you are the most important person because this terrible thing happened to you and therefore you have these rights to tell your story and it's just not true there are other people involved and um sometimes it's just important to remember that and keep your mouth shut uh, uh, a notion for the age um yes sometimes keep your mouth shut not not shall we say how most people live now no not at all. Well, that's what I was, I mean, I was wondering that. I mean, you're doing these interviews. You must have time and again people saying, oh, well, what happened? And uh, Well, and I say the same thing. I say, I really can't tell you it would be a violation of my children's privacy. I'd love to tell you, <laughs> but, you know, it, uh, whatever happened and whoever was at fault, it wasn't my children. They didn't ask for any of that. And uh, to, 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 to drag their experience in front of the world and in some attempt on to get on my part to get pity or justification that would be just an act of cruelty and i'm not going to do it yeah took me a while to realize that but i did eventually so that was one of you i mean would you love to tell me i mean you wouldn't really right i mean that that notion of privacy seems to also run through the book 
Well, you know what's funny is um, is here's the thing, and you've probably known people. Maybe you yourself have 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 uh, gone through some sort of personal trauma, and yeah. it's really important to talk about it. It really is. It, it, if it's happened to you, then it, it's in front of your mind every day, and you want to say, "This is what I want to." I got to tell you what happened. I got to tell you about this terrible thing that happened to me. And you need to do that. Um, I remember reading once, uh, this is, this is a, a gross comparison, and I ask for your uh, indulgence to use it, but I think it's relative in this one way. Uh, I went to Walter Reed once to visit soldiers there, people who were soldiers, sailors, Marines, who had been wounded at the time in Afghanistan. And I didn't really know how to talk to them, but I was pointed to a, an interview with Gary Trudeau, and he said, these people want to talk about what happened to them, because it, right now it's the most important thing in their lives, the thing that happened to them that put them in that hospital. And so don't shy away from it. So it's true. I went into the hospital, and every person I got a chance to sit down with, I said, tell me what happened. And they went through the action or incident that had put them in the hospital, that had taken away their leg or wounded them in some other way. And it really is really important for them to talk about it. And just as it was really important for me to talk about what happened to me and my family for a while. And then you're like, you know what? It's time to move on. And that's kind of what's happened to me. I've realized that uh, at a certain point, well, eventually, if you want to keep, you want to live your life, you have to understand that what's happened has happened, and you need to move on. So that's what I'm trying to do. Very hard, though. You know, a lot of people just stay uh -huh. stuck. And yeah, and what do you and what do you think of those people? I mean, yeah, I ask kind of rhetorically. If you meet somebody, and and some person is like talking about, oh, you know, I had this terrible car accident, and you know, I still can't move my 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 hand, and and you say, well, when did this heart? car accident happened and they said well five years ago and you said to yourself dude move on or, or or maybe it's something more emotional like a divorce or the death of a loved one and, and, and you listen to them and you have sympathy but every, all of us are like you know life is life is for the living keep living and I, that's that's but that's a journey you have to do yourself and i i think managed to do it well in the book you use that notion running towards the positive running through things you use running as a yeah. metaphor but you also yes. are using running if in, in, as a real tool to achieve that. Yes, it's both those things. It's a metaphor and a literal method. It's both. It's good. It's do you know? It's 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 a it's a dessert topping and a floor wax. Debate myself. <laughs> Have your daughters read this book? Oh no. Oh no. No. Not that they are not allowed to. They have no interest. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, it's possible. Someday they'll read it. Uh, I, I thought of them reading it someday. I thought of the day when they might feel an interest to see what I had to say about some of these things. And I wanted to make sure that when they read it, uh, they found nothing to object to, that there was nothing in there that they would feel exposed them or certainly criticized them and God knows not blame them for anything. And I think I did that. The other acknowledgement is to Randy Wayne Wright and his friend Doc Ford, who generously yes. lent me their home as a writer's retreat. I have been yes. plowing through most of the Doc Ford novels. I was pleased and surprised to see that he's a friend of yours. 
He is. I'm very fortunate. I have been so lucky in my friendships and associations. So we went down to Tampa a couple of years ago to do our show, and Randy was our guest. And I got to know him, and I got to know his work, and I got to know Doc Ford a little bit. And uh, one of the things that most people know is that Doc Ford lives in a house that is really Randy's house, right? That the place that she describes as Doc Ford living on Pine Island in Florida is the place that Randy was actually living in. But he told me, he said, I can't live there anymore. He said, because I got too many fans and they keep coming by, he said. So I moved out and now I ran it out to people, you know. <laughs> I said, and, and so it got to the end of, I was getting toward the end of 2016 and I was way behind in the book. It was years behind in the book. And I realized I needed to take some time and go somewhere and write this book. So I wrote to Randy and I said, Randy, you told me you had that house. Can I rent it from you? And he basically gave it to me. He said, yeah, use it. Nobody's using it. And he asked me to pay for the utilities. And so I got to spend two weeks sitting in what is essentially Doc Ford's house on Pine Island in Florida. Uh, and, and I got like a good hundred pages of the book written. And if you've ever written anything like that, you know that once you get that first huge chunk done, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to finish something than to start it. So it was hugely important. Um, and, and and the best thing is there was no internet, no internet. I hope there were big fish tanks full of all sorts of sea creatures. No, he's not. I mean, he's that that's fictional. There was there was we were right across the street, of course, from his private dock and there was some kayaks. We could kayak around, you know, the bay, which was really nice. But there were no big fish tanks full of secrets. Uh, one question about running, two questions about wait, wait, then I'll let you go. Sure. Um, Absolutely. How come you still have knees that can handle running? Do you, I don't genetic? Know. Are you lucky? I, I, I might be, you know, I write a lot about my father who became a runner starting probably around the age of 30. And he, he, he ran almost every day until just about five years ago. He's 83 this year, 82 this year. Uh, and so obviously, you know, these short stocky legs are not good much to look at, but they're at least uh, durable. Uh, it may also have to do with the fact that I did have that early career as a runner in adolescence, which might have had something to do with building up the strength in my legs. Uh, but I've just been lucky, and I know how lucky I am because I keep running into people who say, oh, I used to run, and then my knees gave out or something else gave out. So I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Is that your goal, too? I know you still run. You run with your dogs. You're not doing as many yep. marathons. Um, no. Is your goal be 80s into your 80s? Keep oh, on absolutely. being out there? I was, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I just want to slow down, slow down, slow down, and then one day just stop, keel and, over, and be done. Yeah, that sounds like a good way to go. I can, well, there, there are worse ones. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, you is weight, weight, still, um, possible? No, that's not right. Not possible. Are you still having fun with weight, weight in this era of? political era that we live in and why yes if you absolutely are. why why is that for uh, you still possible because i'm having fun with it because the challenge is greater than you'd think so every week we rise to the occasion of trying to, to to satirize something that is beyond satire and that's a difficult task and i enjoy challenges uh but the real the most important reason is there's is there are two related reasons we're really helping people feel better about things not in terms of like their optimism for the future, but just their emotional well-being. I know this because they keep telling me. 
we just like always last night we taped our show and I met hundreds of people. I probably actually I would say literally a hundred people who came up to me uh, after the show and all of them almost without exception say the same thing. They say the news is so hard and the weeks are so tough and we look forward to Saturdays because it helps us feel better. And I feel that's a wonderful thing. I'm very, very glad about that to provide that service. Uh, and so I feel like we're doing some good in this world. And the second thing is it makes us feel better. Uh, I think that as, 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 as challenging as the news is and as challenging as it is sometimes to make it funny, it's a huge outlet to know that I've got this platform that I can actually express some of my feelings, at least in a comedic way. Uh, about the shenanigans ongoing and it is i sometimes i think I, sometimes when i think how incredibly hard it is to try to come up with something funny about what the hell is going on you know like i have to make up something funny about the dismemberment of an american journal or a journalist in saudi arabia or by saudi arabia i mean that seems challenging how much worse would it be if i had to lord pay attention to that and didn't have any any, any platform to talk about it with i was reduced to just ranting on twitter like the rest of everybody so it's a it's a blessing. <laughs> I feel fortunate that I actually have this platform that I can relax and make myself feel better as well. So it's sort of a mutual therapy session, is what it is. You uh, well, I guess it fits with what you wrote in the book. If you have a little bit of a platform and a little bit of fame, you also have to be giving back in some way. I mean, you're lucky that your job lets you give back, but I, but there must be yeah. more than that. Other ways well, you give I mean, back as well. I mean. I try. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I have a small amount of fame. I, I, I like to use it to raise money for people when I can. I like to use it to draw attention. My favorite thing to do is to is to draw attention to other important and good things that other people are doing. Uh, I love to do that on Twitter. If a friend has a project or if a, you know somebody's written a wonderful thing, I'll point to it. If somebody has a Kickstarter that's really great, I'll point it to that. And that's a, a great and easy feeling. But, uh, you know, I, I, I also, you know, one of the things I love to do is I love to headline fundraisers for friends who have important projects or just, you know, sometimes I just donate a bunch of money because uh, I get paid pretty decently for someone in public radio. And so, you know, I think that's I think that's really important because as I think I, I don't know if I said that in the book, but I've said it, that if you have some measure of celebrity and you don't do something positive with it, uh, uh you, you know, you, uh, you don't deserve it. I and mean, that's why, among other things, I don't want to compare myself to actually famous people, but that's why I have no problem with, oh, you know, take your celebrity activist of the moment, Angelina Jolie working for refugees or, or um, you know, even Kim Kardashian, you know, who went and met with President Trump and got that woman out of jail, you know. Sure, she's Kim Kardashian, and we know we know why she's famous and she's shallow. But man, she actually used her fame to do something good for somebody. I'm all for it. Yeah, it was impressive. It was impressive. All right, and I just I I uh, want to know. I've always wondered. Now I can ask you. Sure. What did Carl Castle say on those voice answering messages for the people who won? Wait, wait, quizzes. Anything they liked. Uh, we, we allowed people to write their own messages and people got very, very creative over the years. I think if you're really curious, you can go to the wait, wait website, waitwait.npr.org, And we still have an archive of some of them that you can listen to a selection. And some people got really, really creative. Every oh. now and then somebody would be like, oh, hi, Bob and Jane aren't home now. Leave a message. I'm like, what are you doing? You're wasting it. But Carl loved it. He was delightful. Yeah. Carl was great. He was. He's much missed. All right, sir. I thank you for that, um, for this conversation. Sure. No problem, Steve. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye.
Peter Sagel, author of The Incomplete Book of Running and host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's on stage November 11th with Ross Reynolds of KUOW. They're appearing at Town Hall in Seattle. Town Hall is the sponsor of At Length this season. Very appreciative to be working with them. You can find excerpts of some of these interviews and much more at our Town Hall podcast, In the Moment. Find it as well as finding At Length at Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, I'd love to hear from you. S-S-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. S-Share at gmail.com. And if you like this show, take a moment and review it and give it a thumbs up at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Any reviews will help spread the word, and I'd appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again at length.